This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? <laughs> the shadow knows. From the old-time radio show to later TV and movies, the shadow always sounded mysterious and secretive. Fast forward to the shadow docket, which also sounds secretive and opaque, and in a sense, it is. Emergency orders of the Supreme Court, short and unsigned, issued outside normal procedures, without oral arguments or a full briefing, often late at night and without explanation. While the shadow docket certainly isn't new, it has grown in size and significance. Amy Coney Barrett is probably the first justice to be asked about it in her confirmation hearings. You know, the shadow docket has become a, a hot topic in the last couple of years, but you know, even when I was clerking on the court in 1998, it was not typical for the court to issue opinions explaining why cert was denied. Joining me is Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas Law School who's written extensively about the shadow docket. Steve, explain what the shadow docket is. It's a evocative term for what is usually a pretty mundane part of the Supreme Court's caseload. It was coined by uh, Chicago law professor Will Bode in 2015, basically just to describe all of the orders that the court hands down. So the non-merits decisions, the technical stuff the court does when controlling its docket. And I think the reason why it has become more pejorative and less evocative is because the court in the last four or five years has been doing a lot more substantive stuff on the shadow docket, where what used to be primarily anodyne procedural orders that nobody cared about are all of a sudden a much larger chunk of orders having substantive effects, not just on the parties before the Supreme Court, but on like lots and lots of people as well. Of course, on Thursday, the Supreme Court refused to block the Texas abortion law in its shadow docket. But let's focus on the two decisions last week that ordered the Biden administration to change course, each with huge ramifications involving the migrant protection protocols known as Remain in Mexico and the CDC's eviction moratorium. What are the implications? Well, I mean, I think we saw last week with the MPP case and the eviction moratorium just how much these rulings, June, can affect people. So MPP, now we're having the federal government being required to reinstitute an immigration policy is going to require potentially hundreds of thousands of asylum applicants to pursue their applications from Mexico. Obviously, the eviction moratorium directly affects millions of Americans. And so I think there's sort of two pieces to the critique. Piece one is that if the court is going to be handing down decisions with such broad effects, it really needs to do a better job explaining itself. And the MPP case is a good example. We got basically one sentence of analysis as to why the court ordered what it did. But, Jude, I think the second part is, you know, in the eviction moratorium case where the court actually did explain itself, it still seems problematic that such a major issue affecting millions of people is being decided incredibly quickly under rushed circumstances with really only the skimpiest level of briefing with no oral argument. And in a context where I think, frankly, the court has not historically been at its best. And so I think the pressure on the justices is not just to be more transparent when handing down these rulings, but also to be more thorough and provide as much of an opportunity for involvement for plenary review, provide a thoroughgoing explanation for what it's doing, so that it's keeping with what we tend to think of as principles of responsible judicial decision making. 
there's supposed to be a showing of irreparable harm to the court, right, if the court takes the case on an emergency basis. In these two cases, where was the irreparable harm if the court didn't act? You know, the court could have certainly waited on reinstituting the uh, Trump remain in Mexico policy. Well, I mean, I think, I think in both cases there actually was a pretty good argument for the court moving. I mean, so in the MPP case, you know, the Biden administration was basically being ordered to um, to reinstitute this policy right away. You know, if anything, I think that should have augured in favor of slowing things down if I'm the Supreme Court. And so, you know, by not granting the Biden administration's application for a stay, I think the court exacerbated that urgency and that exigency. The eviction moratorium in June, frankly, I think is a harder case because I think there's harms on both sides. Um, there's the obvious harm to landlords. Um, who, you know, I think many of whom have had trouble recouping the funds that the government had made available to try to offset the effects, the, the effects of the moratorium. And of course, there's the obvious harm to the folks who risk now being thrown out on the street. I think the problem runs much deeper than those two cases. The problem is that the court has increasingly tilted the scales when it looks at the equities toward the party it's more sympathetic to on the merits. So that, you know, the fact that an MPP you have potentially hundreds of thousands of asylum applicants who now face the very real physical risk that comes with being in Mexico and the very real risk that it will prejudice their ability to apply for asylum. That seems to be no never mind to the court's analysis. And I think that's the real concern is that one of two things is true. Either that's disappearing from the court's analysis and that has problems of its own, or it's not, but the court is doing a woefully poor job of explaining itself. And so, you know, I think the, there are sort of different layers to what people find problematic about the shadow docket, I think the lowest hanging fruit is the insufficient explanations from the justices for why they're ruling the way they are. With the migrant protection protocols, there the court is telling the Biden administration that it has to change its policy. You know, a policy that hasn't been used in more than a year wasn't even used at the end of the Trump administration. That seems like a big step to take in an emergency procedure? I think it's an enormous step to take. And I think, you know, the the tricky part here is that we saw over and over again during the Trump administration, the court actually moving quite aggressively to stop lower courts that had blocked Trump administration immigration policies. That immigration is actually one of the most fertile areas of the shadow docket. During the Trump administration, there were at least 11 different times where lower courts had blocked Trump immigration policies and the Supreme Court froze the lower court's injunction. So I think the the irony of the MPP ruling is it really drives home just how partisan these rulings appear and just how ideological they've become, because the same deference that the court showed toward the executive branch when it came to immigration policy under a Republican president all of a sudden seemed to disappear when it comes to immigration policy under a Democratic president. And June, again, I think this goes back to the larger point, which is if the court explained itself, it would be harder for folks to raise that concern. It would be harder for folks to level that charge. But when you couple the appearance of that kind of favoritism with the court's refusal to actually provide an explanation, that's what makes this certainly look so insidious, whether in fact it really is. What about the fact that there isn't a full briefing in these and there aren't oral arguments in these? I mean, so, you know, I think folks who are who are sort of defenders of what the Supreme Court's been doing, I think too often um, caricature critics like me and say that, like, we just think there shouldn't be a shadow docket at all. That's just not true. I mean, I think 
no one disputes that there's a need for the Supreme Court to have the ability to issue emergency relief in extraordinary circumstances. I think the way that it has gotten a bit out of hand is how far that relief is running beyond the party, where we've seen the Supreme Court already seven times this term block by itself state policy and through emergency injunctions when it had only issued four of those in John Roberts's first 15 years as chief justice, right, where the court itself is basically going out of its way, not just to sort of temporarily protect the rights of the parties in a case, but actually to control government policies writ large while the case works its way through the courts. And I think that's the part of the shadow docket that is, to me, the most problematic, because that's where you have all of these transparency legitimacy concerns. It's not that we think the court should lack the ability to issue emergency rulings. It's that we think emergency rulings should be narrowly circumscribed and not be in the business of making broad new pronouncements about the substance of federal law. Do these decisions have the same precedential authority? I mean, can courts cite them as precedent in the same way they can with regular decisions of the Supreme Court on the merits? That's another piece of the story, June, is historically the Supreme Court had insisted that these kinds of rulings were not precedential, certainly not if they came through unsigned orders, and even not to the same extent if they came with a majority opinion. And we've seen the court run away from that this term. So there's a couple of examples in COVID cases where the Supreme Court has treated unsigned orders as precedents binding the lower courts. There's a decision from April called Tandon versus Newsom, where at the end of the unsigned majority opinion, the court chastises the Ninth Circuit for refusing to correctly read the tea leaves of four prior unsigned orders. So Yeah. I mean, the justices themselves, June, are now treating not just the opinions that are coming out of the shadow docket, but even some of the unsigned orders as having precedential effect, you know, that it's more than just by the parties. It actually also should be followed by the lower courts. Of course, that's an enormous problem unto itself, because if all the Supreme Court is doing is giving us one sentence of explanation and telling us that that's precedent, June, it's not hard to see how people can be pretty confused about exactly what precedent it is and what the Supreme Court has actually told the lower courts to do. When did we start to see this increase in emergency orders in the shadow docket? The uptick in emergency applications, June, we really see during the Trump administration. And some of that is because of the Trump administration. I mean, Trump files 41 applications for emergency relief from the Supreme Court in four years, compared to a total of eight in the previous 16 years by the Obama and Bush administrations combined. So that's a 20-fold increase in applications from the federal government. But it's not just the federal government. We see private parties filing more and more of these applications. And I think where we really see this trend accelerate, June, is when Justice Kavanaugh replaced Justice Kennedy in the summer of 2018. And I think there are some pretty obvious explanations for that. You know, I think Justice Kennedy, as you know, was, if not a moderate, at least a moderating influence on both of the sort of wings of the court to his left and his right. And with his departure, I think any procedural constraints that might have come with that went with him. And so now there's not only a solid conservative majority on the merits of these cases, but also now a solid conservative majority to use this procedural vehicle to basically effectively decide those merits. So any of the data, no matter how you slice it, you really see this phenomenon take off, starting with the court's October 2018 term, you know, Justice Kavanaugh's first on the bench. 
Is there a hint that some of the justices have problems with the shadow docket? In the eviction case, Justice Stephen Breyer referenced some of the shadow docket criticism. In his dissenting opinion, he said, these questions call for considered decision-making informed by full briefing and argument. Their answers impact the health of millions. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, that's, I think, the most Justice Breyer has said, at least in an opinion, to criticize the shadow docket. Um, Justice Sotomayor, perhaps not surprisingly, has been much more outspoken. She's written a couple of dissents in these cases where she has been quite critical of the conservative majority for how it's used the shadow docket. But, you know, June, these have been few and far between. And I actually think it's been, you know, part of why this has been flying under the radar is because to the same extent as the conservative justices, I think the, the more progressive justices are fighting these cases on their merits. And so, you know, a good example, again, is that Tandon religious liberty case from April, where Justice Kagan writes this incredibly powerful, incredibly sharp, brief dissent um, about why she just couldn't agree with the Supreme Court's interpretation of the free exercise clause, but sort of allies the fact that the court was doing this in the context of the shadow docket, where it's not supposed to. Um, and so I think, you know, the procedural objections are starting to get a bit louder from the left, but they've been, with the exception of Justice Sotomayor, they've been pretty tame for much of the, you know, sort of uptick and for much of the first couple of years of, this, of the rise of this pattern. What's the greatest concern? Is it the lack of transparency? Is it the rushed proceedings? What's the greatest concern here for you or for other scholars? Um, it's a really good question. I, I think the short answer is um, all things being equal, if I could fix one thing, would be the transparency. The justices would just write more. Um, and so in that respect, I, mean, I would encourage folks to put side by side the MPP decision and the eviction moratorium. You know, whatever you think of the eviction moratorium ruling, we got eight pages of explanation from the court identifying what the standard of review was, identifying why, you know, they thought that the Alabama Association of Realtors application satisfied that standard of review. June, you and I might disagree with some or all of that reasoning, but at least we got it. And so, you know, there's lots of other stuff I'd like to fix, but if there was one big thing, I just wish the court would explain itself a lot more often not because we're going to agree with them, but because it's so much better for everybody if we at least know why the court is doing what it's doing. Thanks, Steve. That's Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. All right, Mr. Clinton, let me ask you this. Do you think as a juror you would be able to set aside any prior opinion you might hold about the savings and loan industry? That was a question, sir. What? Do I like bankers? Uh, Your Honor, may I have a minute, please, to confer with my colleagues? You may. Dump them. While you're at it, let's get rid of number four and six. And I'd say lose number 12, except the prosecutor's going to wake up and do it for us. In the movie The Devil's Advocate, Keanu Reeves is a lawyer using peremptory challenges to get rid of jurors without having to give a reason to the judge. It's a tool both prosecutors and defense attorneys use to get a jury they feel will be sympathetic to their case. Now Arizona is taking a bold, unprecedented step. It's eliminating peremptory challenges entirely, the first state to do so, embracing a reform proposed by Justice Thurgood Marshall more than three decades ago as the only way to end racial discrimination in jury selection. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner in McCarter in English. Start by telling us about jury selection and or voir dire, who asked the questions, just sort of give us the broad 
overview of jury selection? Sure. Um, the selection of a jury is one of the most important phases of any criminal or civil trial because those are the individuals who will ultimately decide the case. And in a criminal case, it's especially important because those are the jurors who will have to decide unanimously as to whether or not the defendant is guilty or not guilty and ultimately may go to jail, often for a long period of time. So when you're a prosecutor and, we're, and you're a defense lawyer, the selection of the jury in a criminal case is a vital part of the case. Prosecutors and defense lawyers spend a lot of time questioning jurors and trying to determine whether there is some kind of implicit bias either for or against the defendant if you're the defense lawyer or for or against the government if you're the prosecutor. Typically, in both criminal and civil jury trials, a court will assemble a panel of potential jurors that is much larger than the actual number of jurors needed to hear the case. And the reason for that is that there is a long process picking a jury where both lawyers from both sides of the case get to ask a series of questions to jurors to determine whether or not they believe that those jurors can be fair and impartial and can give their client, whether it's the United States if you're a prosecutor, or the state if you're a prosecutor, or whether it's the defendant if you're the defense lawyer, whether they can sit there, hear the evidence, and make a decision solely based on the evidence that is presented in the courtroom, and that their decision will ultimately not be affected by any express or even implicit biases that they may bring into the courtroom that could possibly affect their decision. So explain the challenges for cause and peremptory challenges. So although the rules vary from state to state and the federal system has its own set of rules, the way the process works is that lawyers on both sides get to ask a judge to remove a juror for cause if they can articulate a reason as to why they believe that juror cannot be impartial and cannot fairly hear the evidence in the case peremptory challenges allow lawyers to strike a juror for no reason at all. Lawyers do not have to explain why they're striking a juror. They do not have to be able to convince a judge that the, that the prospective juror may not be fair. They can simply remove the juror for any reason at all. The number of peremptory challenges available to lawyers vary depending upon the system, depending upon the state, depending upon the type of case. But for federal felony trials, for example, prosecutors may strike up to six jurors for a peremptory basis, in other words, for no reason at all, while the defense may strike up to 10 jurors on a peremptory basis. But under the Batson case, if it's thought that discrimination is the motive for a peremptory challenge, they can bring that to the judge. There are few constitutional limits on these peremptory challenges, but there is one constitutional limit that goes back to a case called Batson versus Kentucky, which was a Supreme Court case decided in 1986. In that particular case, a black man was charged with burglary and receipt of stolen goods. The prosecutor used these peremptory challenges, in other words, without giving any basis whatsoever, to suggest that a juror would, be, would not be able to impartially decide the fate of the defendant to eliminate all four African-American prospective jurors. The defendant in that case was convicted, and then in a 7-2 ruling, the Supreme Court overturned the conviction and said that the prosecutor's action unconstitutionally denied the defendant his right to a fair trial and his right to equal treatment under the law. 
So what does a defense attorney or a prosecutor have to prove to make a Batson challenge? What happens? The judge decides? So what Batson stands for is the proposition that lawyers cannot remove a juror because of that juror's race. What it means in practice is that if a defendant raises a credible claim that a juror was excluded because of that juror's race, then the burden shifts to the prosecution to come forward with a neutral explanation as to why it decided to exclude a particular juror. At that point, it's up to the judge to determine whom to believe. The problem with that system is that prosecutors can come up with all kinds of neutral reasons why they might want to strike a juror. For example, they may believe that the juror expressed a bias against police. They may claim that a juror is inattentive. And it's very difficult, ultimately, for the judge to determine whether or not there was truly a race-neutral explanation for striking that juror or whether there was some racially motivated reason for trying to eliminate that juror from the case. So, Bob, tell us about the history of peremptories. Peremptory challenges are nothing new. In fact, they actually go back to English law into the 1300s. They were originally put into the system in order to give criminal defendants the ability to remove jurors basically for any reason at all. And the idea was that in a criminal case, the life and the liberty of a criminal defendant was at stake, and so they should have some additional rights to exclude jurors who they think for any reason at all might be biased against them. When that process came to the United States, American courts didn't follow that centuries-old English practice of only giving peremptory strikes to defense counsel in criminal cases, and they applied it to both prosecutors and defense lawyers. So the peremptory challenges have been coming under fire for quite a while, but particularly during the George Floyd case, that peremptory challenges are often used to exclude jurors because of their race. The real controversy here is that when you look at the evidence, there are studies after studies which show that peremptory challenges result in a racially imbalanced jury. So, for example, there was a study in Arizona that showed that the proportion of white jurors seated varied only by 3% from their representation in the population as compared to black jurors who were underrepresented by 16%. Similarly, Hispanics were underrepresented on juries by 21%. So the argument against the peremptory challenges that it results in a racially imbalanced jury and it does not truly give a defendant the right to have a jury of his peers decide their case. So now Arizona is going to completely eliminate peremptory challenges, the first state to do so. I assume that why they're doing this is they think that by eliminating peremptory challenges, they're going to eliminate racially discriminatory juries. That seems to be the motivation here, but it's also important to point out that the elimination of the peremptory challenge really does cut both ways, because remember, defense lawyers also get to exercise peremptory challenges, and in fact, in criminal cases, they get even more peremptory challenges than the prosecution does. So it really comes down to the question of which ultimately is better, to give lawyers the right to strike jurors for no reason whatsoever, or to say that that is being used for some racially improper purpose and eliminate that right for both the prosecution and the defense. Now, there are even defense lawyers who are not necessarily in favor 
of eliminating peremptory challenges because sometimes defense lawyers may look at a juror, may look at the way they're dressed, may look at their body language, may look at the way that they've answered questions and determine that they may not be entirely fair to their client. And with the elimination of peremptory challenges, they will no longer be able to strike those jurors because they, like the prosecution, will have to articulate a basis in order to convince a judge as to why that particular juror may not be impartial. And that is not always evident based simply upon the answers to questions. Defense lawyers argue that it is not realistic to expect a prospective juror to candidly admit that they can't be fair in a trial. And there is something to the argument that when jurors are asked about their ability to be fair and impartial, to express views about race or to express views about the justice system, that that jurors may be reluctant to express those personal beliefs in the context of a courtroom and in the context of a trial in front of a bunch of strangers who they don't even know. And that's the concern that those jurors may still hold some implicit biases, and it may be a bias for the government, it may be a bias for the defense. And now, without the elimination of peremptory challenges, both sets of lawyers, whether on the prosecution or the defense, will not be able to eliminate those jurors unless they can articulate to the judge some reason to believe that those jurors will not be fair and impartial. And prosecutors and defense attorneys can still eliminate jurors of color with pretextual reasons for cause. Lawyers will still have the ability to eliminate jurors for cause, and then ultimately it is up to the judge to decide whether that is a legitimate reason or whether there was some improper reason to try to eliminate those jurors. So it's not to say that you cannot eliminate an African-American juror or a white juror for any reason whatsoever. You have to articulate a reason as to why you believe that that person cannot be fair and impartial in order to ask them to be removed from the jury panel. And also this means that in civil cases where race may not be an issue, you no longer have those peremptories. That's exactly right. This will eliminate peremptory challenges not only in criminal cases, but in civil cases as well. And there are cases, for example, that are not criminal, where you do have lawyers who also have come out against the elimination of peremptory challenges. For instance, in medical malpractice cases, where lawyers may be representing a doctor, maybe representing a hospital, and they're worried about jurors being swayed by emotion rather than the facts of the case. Those are cases where sometimes lawyers will look at a juror, will look at the body language, will look at the way they're dressed, will maybe look at their background, and although those jurors may have expressed the ability to be fair and impartial, the lawyers have a feeling that they may not be entirely fair, that they may be somebody who is tilted slightly more towards the plaintiff, and they will not be able to eliminate those particular jurors unless they can articulate a basis, a cause, on the record based upon the answers to the questions that those jurors gave during the voir dire or the questioning process. They have to be able to point to something that was said in the courtroom to demonstrate by a preponderance of the evidence that the juror cannot render a fair and impartial verdict if they want them removed from the jury panel. So, personally, how would you feel not having a peremptory when you went to trial? Well, I think it's a difficult call, and I certainly see the evidence that the jury panels are not racially balanced. And I think in this case, what we're seeing is a decision that by eliminating peremptory challenges, we're going to get 
a jury that more fairly represents the community, which ultimately is what's important here. But when you're the lawyer sitting in the courtroom and you're not looking at the numbers and you're not looking at the statistics and you're just trying to pick a jury that you think is going to be fair and impartial and going to make a decision based solely upon the evidence that's in the best interest of your client, you do have cases where a, a particular juror may not have said anything, but the way that they've answered questions. Sometimes, even if you're a defense lawyer in a criminal case, you look at the way a juror may be looking at your client, and you just have a feeling that they may not be entirely fair, despite the fact that they're saying that they can be fair and impartial. And those are the kind of jurors who you would like to eliminate. And with the elimination of peremptory challenges, you'll no longer be able to strike those jurors unless you can come up with some kind of a basis based upon the answers to their questions as to why you think they can't be fair and impartial. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter in English. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. <laughs>